When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to a new podcast, The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. Hello and welcome to The Paddock and the Pavilion. For all your racing fans, the Cheltenham Festival is one of the highlights of the year. And in today's podcast, I spoke to former champion hurdle winning jockey Richard Lindley, who won the race back in 1983 on Gay Brief. Richard talked about his famous victory his time working for trainers Toby Balding and Fred Winter and his current key role as the BHA's Senior Inspector of Courses. Thank you to all of you who have sent in questions for Richard Pittman for our Grand National podcast. I would love to hear from some of our listeners overseas. So please get in contact. Enjoy today's podcast and of course the festival. Hello Richard, welcome to the Paddock and the Pavilion. Thank you very much Stephen. Well how, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Yes, yeah, hanging on by my tip still, you know. <laughs> what, what's life been like as a senior inspector of courses during the lockdowns? Um, I haven't been furloughed at all, and we've been working away quietly with my colleagues once they came back um, late May last year. And obviously, in discussions with the race courses, making sure that racing behind closed doors can go ahead with all the various. Um, physical barriers and whatever else in place for that to be achieved really it's been a challenging time for the race courses um and interesting to sometimes too interesting from my point of view <laughs> um but nevertheless we've managed to keep racing going and um all credit to the race courses and all my colleagues that work for the bha so you've still been out and about at race courses yourself yeah yeah i spent quite a bit of time at Cheltenham last week and the week before and will do so obviously next week and uh, obviously still visiting other race courses and keeping in contact with race courses in general. Right. Well, thank you for that. Well, this afternoon, we're going to speak to you about your 15 year racing career and your key role as the senior inspector of courses for the BHA. But as you just said, uh, Cheltenham is just around the corner. Um, and yeah. I wanted to talk to you about your, one of your career highlights, winning the champion hurdle on Gay Brief in 1983. What do you remember about that day? What do I remember? Um, well, it was quite a decent-sized field. I can't exactly remember how many. 17 runners. 17, 17 runners. Uh, I was going to say 16 or 17 runners. And, uh, yeah, my greater was bought by the Sheikh as a, uh, a lead horse to make sure there was enough pace. And also in the race, I think there was comedian ridden by Steve Smith-Eccles as a lead horse for Broadswords. And I um, always had a, had a good position early in the race, fairly ha- relatively handy. My great, I remember, made a horrendous mistake down the back straight, ridden by John Burke, God bless him. Um, Travelled well round out into the country and got to the top of the hill. And I thought, crikey, I'm going well here. I thought, <laughs> that can't be too bad. <laughs> um, and I was just surprised how well I was going. 
Um, and then I got to the second last and more or less jumped to the front and took it up, turning in into the home straight. And I thought, crikey, I've almost got here too soon now. And I sort of rather committed going to the last. And um, he only had to pop it and he made a right horlicks of the of the last hurdle. Um, anyway, he, we recovered sort of and strode away to be boring Prince. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a it was a good day, a good day. But um, he wasn't very big, but he was a he had a high cruising speed, a high cruising speed, and um, always managed to find a bit as well. You know. And how good a hurdler was was Gay Brief on on that day? I think he probably would have graced any champion hurdle finish. Probably, um, I think probably. The golden era of champion hurdles for me was through the 70s with Sea Pigeon, Monksfield, Night Nurse, Persian War, sort of coming out of the 60s into the 70s. But crikey, there were some good hurdlers then and horses that seemed to maintain their ability over many, many seasons, you know. And you beat uh, Dawn Run at Aintree uh, a month later. I I did, um, yes, I can send you. I can actually send you a picture of that. Actually, <laughs> yes, I beat Dawn Run. Bearing in mind, Dawn Run and Run on the previous day or two days before, Tony Mullins rode, rode Dawn Run. Probably wasn't Gabriel's best trip, probably, and or his track entry being quite flat, but it's a long climb from the bottom of the straight home. Um, but he 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 won quite nicely in the end. Uh, I wouldn't say we had. Much up our sleeve, but enough. And probably, to be fair, Dawn Run having run a couple of days before, probably she wasn't at her, you know, peak, having had a fairly energy sapping race a couple of days before. But anyway, so it was a good good performance, yeah. Well, while we're talking about uh, Gay Brief, just moving on to Cheltenham, uh, that was a very successful course for you. But um, how did you first get started in racing? How do I Well, um, I used to have, when I was a child, I used to have arguments with my mother about whether we watched the scrambling uh, or speedway with the likes of Ivan Major, John Banks riding his Husqvarna somewhere in the country, and my mother wanting to watch racing. Um, and for whatever reason, I couldn't possibly tell you why, Stephen, but suddenly became interested in racing. And then we would argue on which channel we're going to watch, ITV or BBC, to which which race we were going to watch. But so having got interested in racing, I used to ride out a, um, a bit for Donald Tucker, whose granddaughter Harriet won the Fox Hunters a couple of years ago at Cheltenham. And I used to ride out a bit for Charlie Fox, who trained near Wincanton at the time. Um, anyway, Don Tucker had a horse called Grove Rock, which Bob Champion had won on as an amateur. However, on this occasion at Aintree, it was my first ever visit to a race course. Um, I went with Donald and his wife, Pat, to Aintree. And Grove Rock ran in the Fox Hunters, ridden by none other than Sir Mark Prescott. And I led him up in the Fox Hunters at the age of 14. And the horse just carted me around the parade ring because I was, I, was, <laughs> I was, you know, six and a half stone wet through and weak as a kitten. Anyway, um, poor old Grove Rock broke down after the second fence um, and he was pulled up, obviously. Um, but during that afternoon on the Thursday, uh, Don Tucker introduced me to Toby Balding, who had just won the Topham with Dozo. And um, 
he just looked at me and he said, oh, bit big, isn't it? Get your father to write to me. Well, of course, two days later, he won the Grand National with Highland Wedding, and he must have had so many letters from all over the place to um, congratulate him on, on Highland Wedding's win. And uh, anyway, didn't hear from him, didn't hear from him. So eventually, uh, he, he, um, we did make contact, and he said, well, come and I went for an interview. And um, Toby's advice is always pretty sound, saying, well, looking at your parents... <laughs> You might end up being quite large. You might do well to stay an amateur, which is uh, uh, good advice, which I did do. So I spent the summer then at the age of 14 at Toby's riding out and getting carted around Wayhill gallops as they were then by everything just about because I was so weak. And then I went sort of there for several summers afterwards. And when I left school, uh, went, to to- went to Toby's and for the winter period and then came back and worked on the farm at home to earn a bit of money to keep myself ticking over. So that's how I sort of got into it. And then basically I had a quite a good year as an amateur, uh, 70, uh, 74, 75. And then I rode on the flat um, a couple of winners for Guy Harwood and one for Toby. Uh, and then to turn professional in the July. I'll just and go back a bit there. You've, you've sort of got ahead of yourself with a bit of my story but so it's your it's your mother's fault uh, how you first got into racing um, <laughs> <laughs> you had a choice of john rickman or peter or peter o'sullivan and um yeah. when you were talking about uh, toby bolding there with highland wedding we're talking then of 1969 when he won the grand national exactly. yeah and um, i uh, did some research on your first ever winner because you just got a bit ahead of me your first winner was at... Um, Apologies. At NAS- no problem. It's uh, interesting to hear. Uh, 1972 at Y on the 6th of May on a horse called Less Curious. Well, Y now is uh, was closed in 1974. Yeah. What do you remember about that first winner? Well, um, actually, there's some comment in um, um, Chris Pitt's book, A Long Time Gone, so Peter Carver, who trained Les Curious, um, he at the time was at Hockley House Stud down near Winchester. And so I got there on a Sunday afternoon and uh, we were going in the horse box to Y. And it was a huge old bus of a thing, this, this lorry of his. And it, it looked, didn't look as if it would get to um, Chichester, let alone Y, however we got there. And on the way there, there was a sign on the road saying there was some goslings for sale. And Big Pete said to me afterwards, he said, oh, I said, oh, my sister was after some goslings. He said, well, if you win today, well, get some goslings on the way home. Well, we never did, and I never saw any goslings at all. Um, but um, less curious, I think it's probably one of the only two courses that he ever won at, I think, probably, um, formerly owned by the Duke of Athol. But... Um, I was just trying to think, actually, Stephen. I think Barry Brogan rode in the race, R.F. Davis, Ron Atkins, and Nick Holman, who rode as Mr. N. Holman at the time. Um, and Nick and I sort of started our careers about the same time, and he used to be at um, David Orton's for a while. But, um, yeah, it was, it was a long old day going to Wyandbach because, of course, the roads were pretty, uh, pretty slow in those days, as you can probably remember. I don't know. Not quite. But I know that the roads were worse in in your in, in your younger days. <laughs> anyway, um, where actually is Y for some of our listeners? 
It's um, Y is not far from Ashford. So if you, as I learned when I got older, to get to Y, you had to go to, well, from Toby's, you go to Andover, go to Waterloo, get over to the other side of Waterloo and then down to Ashford, change trains at Ashford and then stop at Y. Um, and Y Racecourse was quite unique. Uh, the owners only ever used to paint the front of the grandstand. So at the back of the grandstand, it looked like an old wooden shack. <laughs> But um, and of course, they used to only ever take the sheep off the day before racing as well. I think it's a, there's a story about Ali Branford, I think it was, who rode for Fort Warwin going around there one day. And it invariably got quite greasy. And he ended up underneath the electric fence and jumping every time he, a shot came through the electric fence. <laughs> uh, but my, as inspector of courses, my predecessor, Neil Wyatt, his father used to be clerk of the course there, strangely enough. and. Um, he, uh, the, I think the, the then owner had sort of basically refused to have any of the Benz Cambert, which is why it fell into into the annals of history, probably. And it was a, it was a very very quick track. It was only um, about seven furlongs round, two bends, two straights, but the straights were quite short, <laughs> to say the least. Wow, that's interesting. Anyway, so uh, you said you turned pro in seventy five, seventy six season. Uh, did, was that yeah. a big, big decision to turn pro? It was, um, only in that um, I'd, I was just trying to think now, I think I, I rode quite a few winners and I broke my collarbone and I ended up with about 12 winners as an amateur, something like that, something in that region anyway. And then I was riding on the flat a bit. As I say, I rode a couple of winners for Guy Harwood and one for Toby and strangely enough, ended up champion amateur with a grand total of three winners, which I think I must be the the worst tally for any champion that's ever lived probably, but who cares? So, and I was quite, I was quite keen that I kept riding on the flat and I thought, I don't know, let's have a clean cut. So, and then season started and I had a good start. I was riding a bit for John Thorne down near Bridgewater as well. And he had quite a good few early season horses, which was good as did Toby. And it, it all went pretty well. I had a bit of a lull mid-season, but I think I ended up with about just over 30 winners, something like that. I can't really remember. Yeah, but a good a good start and uh, having got off to a good start, didn't maintain that good start, but um, made a few inroads, you might say. And Toby was a good good trainer to, to ride for. Well, funny enough, I um, just backtracking a little bit, I remember when, during my amateur days, I remember standing on the top of the old county stand at Exeter, uh, which is no longer there, obviously. And he said to me, um, I'd sort of asked him about going back in the, for the next winter, and he said to me, I don't really know, I've got, um, I've got too many jockeys ahead of you wanting rides. Um, and something Don Tucker said to me years before, you know, if, you have, if you, you're with a bigger trainer, there'll be smaller trainers always ringing the larger trainer to know if they have any available jockeys or amateurs to take a take a ride and I looked at Toby he said why don't you pop down and spend some time with Ted Fisher at um, Tewton Mendip and I looked and I said I don't want to go to Ted Fisher's I said I'll, I'll take my chance and I'll stay with you governor and I did so and then you know when I did turn, turn professional he supported me very well throughout my early days anyway and I always rode for him even throughout my career you know there was available ride you know he very often would ring me up to take the take them out you know and i read you went freelance in 1980 the same year you rode your first winner for fred winter 
Yeah, so it was, <laughs> that was quite odd, really, because I said to Toby one morning, um, <laughs> I said to him, Governor, I said, I think I'm, I need to go freelance. I, I said, um, you know, I feel I'm not getting, um, doing as much as I could be doing. Um, yeah, he said, um, well, please yourself, Rich. And I, I think I wrote a winner for him the next day at Wincanton on a horse called Royal Portora. I rode a double that day. The other horse was a horse called Caper's Lad for Richard Mitchell, two divisions of a, a novice, three-mile novice chase. Um, but Toby, I mean, never fell out. That's just the way Toby was sometimes, you know. And how did it compare uh, riding for Fred Winter to Toby Balding? <laughs> different characters. Very, very different characters. Uh, Toby loved people on the gallops and all that sort of nonsense in the morning so with owners and dogs and god knows what and people going around flat out fred you could never speak to fred until it had gone past Brett. <laughs> um he was he was lovable guy but crikey he was a bit grumpy in the mornings i think john franklin would tell you the same actually but he was i remember going up to the gallops one morning schooling and he was used to ride out first lot men hand over his horse at the top of the gallop and um these kids were going to school jumping up and down in the puddles. And he stopped and he gave them an almighty ticking off for jumping up and down. You'll be sitting in wet feet for the rest of the day, you stupid children. <laughs> and off he'd go, trotting off like mad, you know. But um, uh, very, very different characters, for sure. You had great success um, with horses like Half Free and $50 More for Fred Winter, where you were also the retained jockey for Sheikh Ali Abu Kamzin. Now, he yeah. was an interesting character. You can't seem to find anything about him now on the internet, even. Uh, um, I haven't had any contact with the Sheikh probably since since my riding days, in, in truth. Um, and then I was off for a while anyway. But I, since sort of not long after the uh, I wrote Gala's Image, I don't remember having any, any contact with him after that particular time, really, that sort of summer, you know. Um, and he soon disappeared off the face of the earth, really. But I was most fortunate to be able to ride some really top-class horses, uh, without which you're always a bit of a also-ran, aren't you, without that, you know, that one of the one or two of those top horses to um, give you, because you know as well as I do, Stephen, racing and particularly jump racing is is a pretty tough old sport and you know for every high day there's probably 20 25 low days probably so i think um to have those good horses to ride makes such a difference to your well-being all of all the way through you know no very lucky well, half half free won what was then the maccasin on two occasions and 50 dollars more also won the maccasin uh, they both finished fifth in the, the Gold Cup. Were they not quite that standard, or was it not their distance, really? I think, if I'm being totally honest, um, $50 more. He was second in the King George as well. But it probably was a bit too far for $50 more, in my view. And also, I think probably he didn't have that extra bit of pace towards the end of any race really he didn't he didn't although when he beat artifice in the maccasin and got up by a short head i think it's fair to say that um i'd ridden artifice before and chris barber uh, paul barber's son who's um, or nichols landlord 
he said to me only last year, he said, well, of course, you would have never won on $50 more if you hadn't ridden Artifice. And in truth, I don't think I probably would have because I wasn't convinced that Artifice truly got two and a half miles. And I think Skew, Peter Scudamore, looking back, if he looked back at the race, he could have sat quietly for another furlong, furlong and a half before he went for home. And as it was, when Observe fell at the third last, Skew kicked for home. And, you know, you have to remember that's nearly three and a half furlongs from the winning line. And what's more, from the second last fence, everything is hard work, you know. So I think I was more than lucky that day on a, on a variety of counts, really. One skew kicked her for home a bit early, observed fell at the third last. Um, and I think it looked impressive $50 more getting up to win, but I don't think he was going quite as fast as everybody thought he was. <laughs> and it was a bit more one pace and staying on really well than, than finding a burst of speed like a like a Moore style or one of those great sprinters, you know. You also yeah. got to ride um, Desert Orchid. Uh, how many times did I you did. ride He's, I can be quite honest with you, he's the only horse I have a 100% record on. And I rode him at Kempton Boxing Day because Colin Brown had chosen to go to Wincanton to ride Buckby, I think it was, in the Coral Qualifier for Cheltenham, um, which is the only reason I got the ride. Um, but <laughs> he was... He was quite lit up, old Desert Orchid. He went, I think he was about 20 clear by the time we jumped the first flight of hurdles. But crikey, he was some machine. I'll tell you how, it's difficult to say how good he was, but I rode a horse called Charcoal Wally in the Holden Gold Cup and Desert Orchid was in there as a novice. And I thought to myself then, well, if anybody's going to give, because Charcoal Wally had already won the Ladbroke Betcher at Doncaster. If anybody's going to give Desert Orchid a, a run, Charcoal Wally will, will. And I got to the last fence and Desert Orchid came past me as if I was standing in a lay-by. And I was absolutely gutted to think that Charcoal Wally couldn't go with Desert Orchid, but crikey, he was some horse. And I remember getting off him at Kempton and saying, that well, of course, if he really learned to settle, he might be quite decent. <laughs> and he proved out to be a bit more than just decent. Um, but there you go. Well, you're one of only five jockeys um, to have ridden him. So and yeah. you, you're the only one with a 100% record, even though I think Simon Sherwood only got nine out of 10, I think. As he's oh, pretty- shocking record, isn't it, really? Fancy only having a 90% yeah. record. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to your career, you were out injured for a, for a long time between November uh, 1985 until January 87. And then at the Cheltenham Festival 1987, you won the Arkle on a horse you mentioned earlier, Gala's Image for the Shake. And mm-hmm. I read you injured yourself during the race. I did. Um, stupidly, one of the cardinal sins of trying to hit a horse going to the last obstacle when I should have just been half sensible. And anyway, I dislocated my shoulder when the horse, he almost tried to bank the last, you know, so he's sort of got his hind end on top of the fence and I don't quite know what he did and you still can't see particularly clearly on footage. But anyway, I dislocated my shoulder and I thought, I wasn't thinking about anything else than actually missing on missing out on riding gay brief in the champion hurdle. Even up the running, I was thinking, oh, so-and-so and so-and-so, I'm going to miss the ride, you know, because it, some people, Richard Rowe, um, he, he used to dislocate his shoulder regularly during a race and he was always able to put it back in. 
during the race. Um, however, even my attempts to sort of get my back in never worked. And it, it just was, it's, it's the most uncomfortable feeling. I can't tell you. Um, but I it went out. I won the race. Um, Alton Glaze was second, I think, written by Chris Grant. And um, he could recognise my discomfort because he, he got hold of um, Gala's image on the running when I was pulling up because I didn't, I wasn't in a particularly uh, good <laughs> good place, you might say. But no, he, he did. And he wasn't, he never took to jumping fences particularly well. And um, he wasn't a particularly good horse, I'd have to say, but he had a high cruising speed. And that's just what you've got. That's all you've got out of him, really. Um, and I think, again, it was a question of, just staying on particularly well rather than him finding a dramatic turn of foot. But he was never, never in love with fences. But um, anyway, it doesn't matter now, does it? Because he won and um, I got my shoulder put back, so that's fine. <laughs> it must have been a strange feeling winning a race like that and yet being in uh, severe pain. Well, the pain doesn't really kick in until you stop and then you get cold. Um, you know, once you're warmed up and your blood's up, that's fine. It's when you start getting a... Um, your body starts cooling down and um, that's when it feels a lot more uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, you retired probably six months after that. Uh, was it the right time to retire? I think, I think it probably was, Stephen. For me, it was anyway. I mean, I would have loved to continue, but um, the shake hadn't, uh, uh, the straight, the shake string had dwindled somewhat and, um, a lot of things had changed while I'd been off for a year. You know, all of a sudden, people getting agents and using mobile phones and, and of course, not being around and um, not being party to all those sort of changes. Uh, I found it um, didn't, uh, you know, a lot of the lads had moved on and retired as well. And so it was the right time for me. And um, I was happy, you know, I, whatever anybody says, I still, and I, there's a lot of lads still ride into their 40s now. But whatever, and you, so long as you're young mentally, that's fine. But I wasn't young mentally any longer, as I once was. Uh, suited me fine to give it best and enjoy what I'd done, you know. And the job with uh, Inspector of Courses for the South, was that um, on the cards? It was sort of on the cards, but it hadn't, I had a decision to make. So when I was offered, when I was after the job, having had my interviews, et cetera, with the jockey club, as then were the regulators of racing. It was quite a, you know, when you strive to sort of uh, ride horses and ride winners for most of your life, most of your working life, then to just sort of say, oh, well, let's not bother anymore. Let's, <laughs> let's go and do something completely different. But um, I think uh, it was, it was there, there were jobs going before the inspector of courses jobs, which didn't interest me one little bit. Starter, stipendry steward, as they were then, uh, nothing that, but whereas the inspector of courses doing what the inspectors do, you know, looking at the courses, physical attributes and um, some R&D and all that sort of thing, and dealing with the race courses on a day-to-day basis did interest me. And coming from an agricultural background was, I wouldn't say it stood me in good stead, but if I didn't know the answer, I probably knew where to go to find the answer if it, if it related to Graham's works and uh, anything on the racing surface, you know. Yeah, I guess it must be hard when you've been doing something for, you know, 15 years to completely change. But like we've said earlier, you 
you like um, repairing things. So it was the sort of job that you, you must have enjoyed doing. Very much so. Um, if I may indulge just slightly, Stephen, I must be one of the very few people, actually just going back to my riding career, that rode a Cheltenham Festival winner in April. Because in 1978, when the festival was abandoned on the Thursday, um, I was just, I, you have to forgive me, I dug out a form book yesterday. And um, what is now the Marsh used to be the JLT and formerly was the Golden Miller Chase. And I won it for Togo on a horse called Arillo. Interestingly enough, the two-day meeting at that time, Mr. N. Henderson rode a winner each day. Oh, that's that, interesting. that was the midnight court. Midnight Court Gold Cup year, wasn't it? Yeah. It was, that's correct, yes, 1978, yeah. So the triumph hurdle that year was won by Connaught Ranger, written by John Burke, trained by Fred Rymel. So two uh, winners for Nicky Henderson. Yeah, he won the, I can tell you because I put it here, I dug it out because I'm such a sad person. He rode He rode the last winner on the, on the Wednesday, a juvenile novice hurdle for Barry Hills, would you believe? And on the second day, John Frank rode a winner each day, I think. Um, on the second day, where are we? He won on a horse called Bob Bunker for Les Kennard. And the same day as well, Mr. Tizard rode a winner. Mr. Colin Tizard rode a winner, would you believe? <laughs> oh, that, that, that ought to get those two people listening to this podcast now. With, yeah, you ought to. You all, the old codgers reports, to yeah. all the old codgers together, you know. I've mm. got that quote from you now. Now... <laughs> You're now the senior inspector of courses for the BHA. Um, Can you let us know what that job involves? In a nutshell, but but in a nutshell, it's making sure that racecourses adhere to and comply with the British Horse Racing Authority general instructions. If anybody's particularly suffering from insomnia, if they go to the BHA website and look up general instructions, you know, rules and regulations are incredibly boring unless you're the one that's administering them or you, the, the people having to comply by them. But so the, the racehorses apply for an annual license and for that annual license, they have to comply with the general instructions. What is infinitely or can be quite difficult is the fact that for some racecourses, the instructions are the minimum standards. We all know that Aintrees and Cheltenham's and Ascots of this world go over and above the instruction, but it's the minimum standards applying those to race courses across the board they all race different times of year they all have different um, attributes in their racing surfaces probably uh, their structures their buildings are all different some that have been rebuilt are great you've had, you know there's been an ability to improve them internally and externally and provide everything that everybody else does but in a slightly better way I think actually one of the one of the things that have that has come out of the COVID um, lockdowns and racing behind closed doors is the fact that it's quite difficult to remember how we managed to get eighty or ninety jockeys into the jockeys' changing rooms at Cheltenham. Um, this coming year, we've got the iris segregated in the main building and a facility that can accommodate sixty-five jockeys in another building with about sixty yards between the two. But I, I think doing the inspector's job, it's not just about applying the instructions. It's, it's about our knowledge and advice about the particular courses, how we might encourage racehorses to look at their fixture list, how we might um, 
you know, if we if we don't know the answer, we know somebody that will know the answer. One of the, I think one of my proudest things that we've been involved with as the inspectorate team since I started is being introducing the groundsman's courses. Um, so groundsmen, racehorses have to have a groundsman trained to the equivalent standard of NVQ two and three in amenity horticulture. And, you know, I don't know if anybody has, or any of your listeners have ever stopped to think why racecourses are racecourses. And the simple answer is they're racecourses because they're rubbish farmland. Um, Neil White, my predecessor, used to say, well, of course, if you farm next to the racecourse, you go bust within six months. Um, you know, you've got three, four inches of topsoil um, on a sort of PTO soil, um, second highest course in the country, sometimes as much as six feet of rain a year. So all your nutrients are going to leach out like nothing on earth. Um, and I think by by introducing groundsman's courses, I think it's hopefully given a lot of the groundsmen a, a vehicle to improve their knowledge. And not only that, but having the courses and getting everybody together, staying in touch because they're all faced with the same problem. You know, Adrian Kay, who's head groundsman at York, um, does a fantastic job and now a director of the Institute of Groundsmanship or the um, Groundsman's Management Association, as it's called now. But if, you know, the sort of stuff, it sounds very ridiculous, doesn't it? But the sort of stuff that um, people need to know and racecourses executives need to know is what have I got to spend in two years' time for this racetrack? You know, have you got a crystal ball? No, but if you can if you can narrow things down a bit so that you can get proper budgets sorted out and all that sort of thing, which is what we talk about on some of the groundsman's courses, people feel more comfortable in allocating money for a job. So if I told you, for example, that you know, in our in certain ground conditions um, at Aintree, when Adrian was at Aintree, he worked out that he would need a ton of backfill divot mix for every single runner at the Grand National meeting. So, you know, you get 250 runners, he'd, have, he'd get, be getting in 250 tonnes of material to repair the course after the Grand National, during and post-Grand National meeting. You know, you've got the Marway course hurdle, chase track, you've got the Grand National course itself. Um, but it's all those little things that the Grand staff have got themselves to grips with over the last few years. And one of the issues, I think, for racing generally is that, you know, during this COVID period with so many races, uh, at some race meetings, um, it's almost oversubscribing some of the turf where in an ideal world, you know, think, oh, going back to six races a day and only 10 meetings a year, fantastic. <laughs> um, you know, just down the road from where I am, Wincanton, we used to have 12 meetings a year from October through to Easter Monday, and now they have something at 17, 18 with seven races a day, you know. So you're, in effect, adding on with those extra races as well another couple of three days of racing, you know, and it's the important thing is getting the courses repaired as quickly and as well as you can, if circumstances allow you to do so. And you also get involved in moving fences, which you've done at uh, Cheltenham. I think the penultimate fence at Cheltenham has been moved two or three times, hasn't it? Yes, you're quite right on the old course um, and the, forgive me, Stephen, and the fourth last on the new the one at the top of the hill. So the old course was last moved in 2010. But before then, um, what what Simon Clay, when Simon took over as clerk of the course, what 
he and I didn't particularly like and it was um, still happening was that horses seemed to jump the fence well and fall for no apparent reason. So Simon got a level surveyed another takeoff and landing and then we moved it forward, we moved it back a bit and and then we had a schooling session one day, which I have to admit didn't go particularly as planned um, when Nigel Twist and Davis brought some horses ridden by Paddy Brennan and Carla Ellen and um, uh, Willie, I think, came that day as well, and Sam Twist and Davis. And I think, so they jumped it once coming round the bend and then they started from the top of the hill and jumped what is the third last and round to the second last. And they were going seven furlong pace coming around the bend. I thought, I just shut my eyes. I thought, I can't, I cannot see this is sensible. Anyway, they all, there was a few of them hit the deck and it was fine. But I think what I would say is it's, although we have had it uh, odd four run, dare I say, sadly, an odd fatality there, it's nothing like the attrition rate that it once was. And I think um, it's proved, um, I know we're touching wood as we go into next week, but and certainly the jockeys are a lot happier with where it is. Um, and I think it's, it's worked reasonably well. And of course, we have shifted other fences around the country. Um, the first down the back straight at Aintree was one of the more recent ones to be moved. Um, Plumpton, this is going back several years. But yes, there's been a few that have been moved. But certainly Cheltenham, second last on the old course, have been the most prominent of all the ones that have been shifted. And the other area where you've been involved in is um, the changes in the hurdles, which I think began with work done by yourself on personally, I think, at home or something. That's that's absolutely correct. And funny enough, I was just going through the list for, um, I did a Zoom early on with the uh, Cat B riders at the Northern Racing, Northern Horse Racing College. Uh, I started out my project on the padded hurdles back in sort of 07, 08 and played around with various things at home um, with the support of the Jockey Club and then BHA in terms of materials and stuff like that. And then following on from hawking them around the country to Fosslass and Moulton, David Pipes, Paul Nichols, uh, where else did we go? Paul Nichols um, and Philip Hobbs. We got them onto Newton Abbott on in 2013. And the, the jocks, having agreed that they were quite happy to uh, have them introduced to Newton Abbott, then rather felt that it was um, not what they wanted to see. And I said, well, actually, you know, guys, Newton Abbott have just spent nearly £30,000 on these new hurdles. Now you're saying you don't want them, having agreed that it was fine, because um, they were also taken to Lambourne for, for everybody to have a play around over as well. Anyway, it was the first year was quite challenging for or should I say the first two years for 2013, 2014, for um, Newton Abbott, Pat Masters and Jason Loosemore. But, you know, Pat and Jason were very supportive and worked their backsides off to make it work. I think lesser, um, uh, lesser lights would have sort of capitulated when the jockeys kept rumbling on about it. They sort of didn't like it. Didn't and, of course, that sort of extended to Taunton then, and that got going well. Um, and we had nearly 27,000 runners over them now. And the faller rate has come down compared to Birch Hurdles by about point, uh, 0.4%, which is represents 
on the current numbers, probably about 130 less falls over the padded hurdles than we might have had over birch hurdles, which is not insignificant, really. So it's it's been a it's been a long old road, and of course, I think we probably would have been talking about maybe one or two other courses taking them on if it hadn't been for um, lockdown and the pandemic. Interestingly enough, um, Australia have just adopted them. So they start their jump season in Victoria quite soon. And um, they've in, they're introducing them there. Um, and Jamie Steer, our former head of all things racing in the BHA, has gone back to Australia and he's been keeping me in touch with what's going on. They are also adopting. I don't know, Stephen. Did you see anything about the Equine Vision Project from Exeter? That was Unum? one of the things you you mentioned before when we last spoke, uh, yeah. where you were investigating in what was the best colour for mm-hmm. a horse to see as they approached a hurdle. Yeah, and so that sort of they came out with um, fluorescent yellow number one, and then white number two as the preferred options. And Australia are also adopting white takeoff boards for their new padded hurdles as well. France have had white takeoff boards forever, but unfortunately they don't keep any records. So that's not going to be a great help for us. But um, I think I'm still hoping that we'll manage to progress a change at some stage, but it won't be in the immediate future for sure. So it's, it's all about minimising risk, really. That's the important thing. That's what we've got to do all the time is try and minimise risk. And are you hoping one day they'll be on every one of the national hunt courses? Um, I'm hoping that whatever's there is better than what we have now, whether it's a padded herd, somebody comes up with something that's slightly different, I don't know. But I think we have to be mindful that we are heading into a different territory as we go on now um, in terms of people supporting racing. And we need to be mindful of making it as safe as possibly can be. But we also have to be mindful, you know, if you're moving, there's always a risk. And it doesn't matter whether you're walking along a pavement or climbing Mount Everest. You could trip up and break your leg on a paving slab because it's slightly raised. Um, and there was that poor climber the other day who fell in trying to rescue somebody in the in the fells in uh, Cumbria and had a terrible fall. But So it doesn't matter whether it's Cumbria in the fells or Everest or walking along a London Street, there's always a risk. And I think what part of the inspectorate's job is minimising risk where we can. And that has to be a priority, not only for the equine participants, but also for the for the riders, of course. And I don't know if you saw uh, Plumpton a week ago, Monday, Steve, when we had the first stop race with um, uh, the new stop race arrangements, the new stop race flag, which is what everybody will see, the same flag that the starter uses and the advanced flag operator uses. Um, and that worked well. It, um, so that was that was good. And that was done through a consultative process with the PGA representatives. I, I talked to people in motor racing and it's like all these things, you've got to get all the information you can from every, every potential avenue that might be of some use to, so you don't, produce something and then have to go back over it all over again because you didn't ask the right person. Interestingly enough, Thruxton, near where Toby used to train at Fifield and Kimpton, um, the general manager there was quite amusing about 
motor racing drivers and about them ignoring flags and doing what they like because they wanted to get a better position <laughs> when the race restarted. It was quite an amusing conversation. But um, That sounds like you jockeys, doesn't it? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I mean, I think providing people remember and realise that the facts are that, you know, there's no gain to be had by continuing any race where that flag is raised. And that's the important thing to remember. Um, and I'm sure that it's... it's uh, well embedded in their minds now anyway and particularly a help to have a, a new flag and it does look quite quite good from a distance in terms of the contra- contrast of colours that stand out I think probably particularly well. Well it sounds like you're in in the right job any plans <laughs> to any plans to retire or? No I can't retire Stephen unfortunately <laughs> no I'm not not um not planning to retire although um probably in a couple of years, but I, it would be nice to get back to normality. Um, there's a, quite a few groundsman's courses that have um, been deferred because of the pandemic. Um, and they're courses which you need to have a hands-on experience with the delegates because it's so important when you're speaking to people about trying to identify grass seeds and, and grass species and all that sort of thing and, and do practicals with um BHA instructions that you can have that close contact with the with the people that you're trying to teach or hopefully teach, um, and hopefully that'll that'll come back. But uh, difficult to do those things online, I believe. You know. And aside from racing, when hopefully all sort of lockdowns end on June the twenty first, is there anything that you would like to do that you've not been able to do for like the last twelve months? Well, I'll tell you what would be quite nice. And funny enough, I, I did send a note to a friend yesterday, um, having looked at some of the recent um, new stuff. It would be quite nice to go and have a game of golf, go and have a pint and a meal in a nice hostelry with your mates, wouldn't it? You know, yeah, or you, good idea. Mrs. Lindley out for a decent bit of um, dinner at a, a, a respectable uh, restaurant. That would be quite nice, wouldn't it? Oh, that's anyway. something. <laughs> That's something to look forward to. Uh, it sounds like you will still yourself be at Cheltenham next week, so you won't be relaxing on the sofa like a lot of us will be. Uh, no, definitely not. You'll be busy. I'm going on Monday. We've got a few things to type on Monday, and then I shall be there every day next week, and then it'll be back to sort of slightly more normal stuff on following Tuesday when I'm going to Epsom, so that'll be quite fun. It will be very different going to Cheltenham with no crowd, though, won't it? It's not something that, um, yeah, it's, dare I say, I can definitely give you an analogy, really, but it's a little bit like going to a farmyard with no animals, really, you know? <laughs> you know uh, no, nobody about at all. So I should be, I'll be like a farmer, Stephen, I should be out in the middle of the racecourse, like a farmer outstanding in his field. Well, thank you very much for being on the paddock and the pavilion. I'm hoping from your little delving in one of your books there that we might get a couple of old codgers to listen to <laughs> this afternoon's podcast. Uh, they'll yeah. certainly uh, certainly get a mention on social media to um, perhaps jig them along to have a listen, even if it's only for that part of the, uh, the show. But thanks yeah. again for joining us. I shall mention it to Colin and Nikki when I see them maybe next week that they need to speak to you, Stephen. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Stephen. Nice to talk to you. 
Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Pad and Pav. Sports Social Podcast Network.